All right, so we are going to be in Mark chapter 1, and uh, as you are getting to that place, let's pray together. Father, I pray for your blessing over this time. Holy Spirit, we know that you are able to speak through us and to us, in us. We pray you would do your work. God, please help me to be faithful to the communication of your word and to, um, God, I, I just, I just want to see you work. I want to see you work in, in my heart and in the hearts of everyone in this room. God, help us to submit to the authority of your word and to your rule in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the end of last week, we talked a little bit about how um, we mentioned how Jesus called the disciples out. And one of the pieces of that calling um, was that when he said, uh, come and follow me and I will make you become fishers of men, we talked about how that was a military command and how it wasn't just a suggestion. It wasn't just a, hey, this is kind of a good idea. It was a command and a command that was followed. And so this week, what we see is actually going off onto that theme of authority and so what does that authority look like? Um, what does is, what is the authority of Jesus look like? And, and authority is just, this, it's an interesting concept, really. Like when you think about authority, there's all kinds of ways to get authority and all kinds of ways to have authority. Um, there's the authority that comes with a title or a position. So that it's, it's something that the person hasn't earned or done anything in and of themselves, but they just have a title um, or a position that that, um, that, that has authority. There's the authority that um, sometimes people try to gain authority by grabbing it and trying to take control of it and, and to uh, reach it and to manipulate to get it. And so um, there's, there's that kind of an authority, like a, a forced authority. But then there's the kind of authority that's, um, that's just there. It's just inherent. Like some people just have authority. They just exude authority, whether they have a position, whether they have tried to or not, they just, they just have it. I had, a, I had a teacher in high school who had that kind of authority. His name is Mr. Leonard. And Mr. Leonard was um, uh, a short, short, round, older gentleman and um, just kind of a jolly guy. Like, he, he, was, a, he was a funny guy. He's very, he had a dry sense of humor. Um, he, he was one of our football coaches, but he wasn't an intense guy. He was very laid back and very just kind of just mellow. And um, he would just always have these cheesy kind of quips he would throw out, you know, like if... Um, if somebody would be arguing in the class um, or, or hear someone giving somebody else a hard time, he would just very quietly from sitting behind his desk, he would just say, you know, it's uh, nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. And we'd always be like, what does that mean? But, you know, like you just would stop, though. He's the kind of guy that you would listen to. Like, whatever he said, whenever he'd speak, you'd just stop and listen. And I always saw, and I was always marveling at the fact that this was, um, he was my freshman geography uh, teacher, and so I always marveled at the fact that other kids who um, wouldn't listen to any other teacher and disrespected all kinds of authority respected him. But he wasn't ever loud, and he never, he just, it just was the way it was. I remember one time in particular that I, um, I had my, because like I said, I was in ninth grade, so that meant I was very cool. All right, so that goes without saying. So I was sitting in a chair, and I was sitting at my feet up on the desk in front of me. And he, um, he, he just said very subtly, just sitting there again, very, you know, kind of monotone, Mr. Williams, do you put your feet up on the furniture at home? And because I'm super smart, I said, yeah, I do all the time. And he said, well, you're not at home. 
feet down immediately. Like, and he wasn't, he just never even looked up. He just, that's the way he was. So all of us kind of expressed this about him. He's just the kind of guy that you just did whatever he said to do, even when it was calm. But we could never put our finger on why. It just felt different when he gave instructions. And then one day we, showed, we understood why it felt that way. One day our, our classroom and our schools didn't have doors. We had no doors in our classrooms, no windows. It was, it was weird. But um, we would sit there and you could hear what was going on sometimes in other classes and in the hallway, of course. And one day a fight broke out in the hallway right outside of my geography classroom. And it was like a real fight, like not, a, not a, like a pushing and shoving kind of a thing or yelling. It was like, you know, full fisticuffs and they were going at each other. And it was one of those where it's like the Tasmanian devil kind of thing, you know, where, where teachers tried to get in there, but it's like they're flying out because they can't, you know, they can't grab any, like nothing's staying in one spot. And the, these, these two kids just went at it and they were, they were older guys. And um, so they we hear all the commotion and Mr. Leonard just gets up from his, he looks up, gets up from his chair and walks purposefully, but calmly out the back of the classroom. And then we, of course, all clamor behind him to watch. And, he, and as he's walking out into the hallway, he just says, stop it. And they don't. This is the first time I'd ever seen someone not do what Mr. Leonard said to do. And he continued to walk over to them and he grabs each one of them by the collar of their shirts, which you can't do this now, I don't think, but then you could. Grabbed each one of them. One of them pulled one off and took the other and lifted him up against the wall of the classroom. Which that is some serious old man strength right there. (laughs) And we all just froze. And he didn't yell. He just said, I said, stop it. And now we're going to the office. And he set him down, and they just followed him to the office. And our whole class was like, did you see that? (laughs) One hand. And immediately, everything we felt about him was proven true. And what we see here with Jesus this morning is a similar situation He goes into a synagogue in verse 21, chapter 1. It says, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, which was common. So in the synagogues, the priest that was there, if there was a priest, um, they they wouldn't necessarily do the teaching, that it was common that lay people or um, a traveling rabbi would, would share. So that was normal. So he was teaching, and so that wouldn't have been abnormal. It wasn't strange that they let Jesus teach, but this is what's strange. In verse 22, it says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So how he's teaching is different than anything they've ever heard. And the, what makes it different is the authority with which he's teaching. So it's not just power. They've seen people teach with power. They've seen people teach, you know, in articulate ways. I'm sure they've, they've heard all kinds of wise teachers teaching with wisdom. But this was different because he was teaching as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Now, the scribes were the people who were most admired for their ability to teach at the time. So they would have known the law better than anyone. And so when they taught, like people listened to them and really admired their teaching. And so what Mark is saying here is that they were astonished because it wasn't anything they'd ever heard before. 
And one of the reasons that would have been something probably what he was doing is what we often see him doing. Which, so the scribes, when they would teach, they would quote other um, prophets. They would quote the Torah. They would quote. So they would say things like, well, Moses says this, you know, or um, he, they, would, they would talk about it and they would talk about the law. They would quote the law. They would quote prophets. And that's the way that they taught. But Jesus didn't quote. Jesus just spoke. Essentially, Jesus was quoting himself. Now, we know from later on, we, you maybe even have some thoughts um, come into your head, some examples of that. Like when he would say, you've heard it said, do not, do not, um, do not commit murder. But I say, anyone who has anger in their heart towards their brother is guilty of murder. So he often do that. You've heard it said this, but I say this. And this was earth-shattering to people. He taught as one who had authority. And it was interesting how they then respond to this. It says that they, they were astonished. And that word, again, as often our, our English language falls a little short, but astonished, um, it, it means in the way of to be struck with shock. It's, it's a sense of, of kind of fear. That they, were, that they were shocked that he was doing this. So it wasn't just this, oh, hey, look, he, this guy's teaching with authority. This is interesting. Come and listen to him. It was, he's teaching with authority. What is this? And almost before they can ask any more questions, we see in verse 23, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So as he's teaching, they're saying, this is like unlike anything we've ever heard, in a way unlike anything we've ever heard. And now this unclean spirit, this demon-possessed man, starts crying out in the middle of the synagogue, like on cue. He's crying out and, and possessing this man. And, and he screams out, why, Jesus of Nazareth, like, what have you to do with us? Are you going to destroy us? And then they say, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And Jesus tells him to, silent, to be silent. There's a couple interesting things about this. First is, like, why is he telling him to be silent? What's the deal with that? Well, the reason why he would be calling out like that, the reason why he claims and he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, is that in that time, to know someone, to know their name, to know them, to speak their name over them was a, was a type of authority. It was, a, it was gaining the upper hand on them. It's one of the reasons, not the only, but it's one of the reasons why um, in the Jewish tradition they wouldn't speak the, the, the word Yahweh or they wouldn't, and they wouldn't write it out. It was just this feeling of, like this name is too holy, like we shouldn't be speaking it. And so what the demon is trying to do is it's like a last-ditch effort to try to exert some kind of authority over Jesus. And Jesus responds by saying, be silent and come out of him. 
Now here's what I want us to see in this. This isn't just power, though it is power. This is authority. There's a difference, right? Like Jesus doesn't overcome the unclean spirit. Jesus doesn't battle with the unclean spirit and like get into this huge epic battle where these forces, like a superhero movie, where they're battling against each other and it's kind of the struggle back and forth. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He simply speaks a command and it is obeyed. That is more than power. That is authority. And that is what is so shocking to them. He's not pleading He's not fighting. He's commanding. And the evil spirit has no choice but to obey him. And they are all amazed. Now imagine, maybe you can see why they'd be a little nervous about this Jesus. Why it's not just awe and wonder, but there's a little bit of fear. He commands even the unclean spirits. And you know what's going on here. You can understand part of it by by their response. We see this fear, this astonishment, this panic or this shock coming up in them. And the, the reason they feared and were astonished is because they heard what Jesus was saying and what he was asserting. And then they see it play out in front of them. The fear of the Lord is such a difficult concept for us in the church to grasp. And we try so hard. We know it's important. We know that we are, we are commanded to, to have a fear of the Lord. We know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But we have such a difficult time identifying or defining it. But I think sometimes we... We overthink it a little bit. And what we see in Scripture, and we've talked about this many times, that fear is the natural response of everyone who comes into contact with the divine. Which, if you think about it, makes sense. Because fear is the natural human emotion that comes up whenever you come face-to-face with something that is more powerful than you and out of your control. That's, that's the natural, like you may, some of you are wired to fight against that. Some of you are wired to run away from that. But it's all motivated by the same thing, which is fear. And so really what we understand about fear is that, that it's hard to define, but we know it when we see it, right? You know it when you feel it, and you feel it when you come face to face with something that is worthy of your fear. And I think that we would do, we'd be better served rather than trying to specifically define what exactly does the fear of the Lord mean, I think we would be better served to spend our time seeing rightly the object of that fear. Here's, um, you know, when when I was in school years and years and years ago, um, one of the big tragedies that faced um, my generation at that time, and many of you are, would share this, is um, the havoc that drunk driving wreaked on um, so many of us. I lost several close friends in, um, in that. And they tried to figure out, like, how do, you, how do you stop this? Like, how do you get people to understand how destructive this is? And they try all kinds of things and trying to, like, 
get people to imagine. Like, hey, imagine what it would be like if this happened to you. Imagine what it would be like if you caused this kind of destruction. Imagine what it would be like. But, but there, over time, the, the programs that meant the most and were the most effective were ones that didn't talk about hypotheticals but tried to show the reality. And some of those programs were, have happened in this area where they will construct a recreation of, of a crash scene and put students that the students know in those scenes. And it seems it's gruesome and it's terrifying. And in that moment, it makes more sense why, why this is so dangerous, why it's so destructive. They didn't have to explain to students in those moments what fear looked like. I, I didn't have to have anybody explain to me how I should feel about some of the things that I saw. It came naturally when I saw clearly what was going on. If you see God as holy and come face to face with that, you won't need to describe or define what fear looks like. You will experience it. And the reason I know that is because every circumstance where people come into contact with the divine, the response is fear. It's the natural response when you come into contact with something bigger than you, something that's out of your control. And many of us in here are completely fine to live in a hypothetical conversation about the fear of the Lord. But I would encourage you to move into the reality. Listen to what he's actually saying. Watch what he's actually doing. The response will take care of itself. But what's interesting about this response of fear and why it's so difficult for us to really describe it and articulate it is because it's not the same kind of fear like at a crash scene. Fear of a crash scene, that you see that, and what that's meant to drive in you is this idea of, I don't ever want this to happen. So I want to run away from this, or I want to keep this from happening. But what many people, how they respond to Jesus, is they're drawn to him. They are both terrified and curious. And you see that when they say, what is this? It's a new teaching with authority. He commands even the clean spirits and they obey him. In verse 28, and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. We see later that the whole city comes to to meet him. And there are many people in the Bible that respond this way. Now some respond to that fear of seeing who he really is and they do run. They do turn from him. That happens. And then there are people who, in seeing all that, they are drawn to him. They want to see what is he going to do next? What's he going to say next? And some of you here are in that stage. You've heard claims about Jesus. Maybe you've heard Jesus be spoken about in ways that you've never heard before. Maybe you're reading your Bible for the first time or for the first time really getting into it and understanding who this Jesus is. And it's a little scary. It's a little intimidating. But it's also sparking your curiosity. You know, when we started our church back in Denver, that very first meeting in our home was mostly non-believers, mostly people who weren't following Jesus. They may have had a church background or they may not have. 
But they, they had never really read their Bibles. And one of the greatest joys in the history of my ministry is sitting with these men and women as they, we opened the book of John. And I will never forget the awe and the wonder in their faces as they really engaged. Not just like read through to try to get through the thing, but engaged with it. And put themselves in that situation. And it almost became like this great novel where they're just wondering each time, like, what's going to happen next? Who, who's he going to talk to next? What's he going to do next? What does this mean? But there's another type of curiosity that sparks people. And that's what we see later in the evening. In verse 32, it says, That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So news of what he has done spreads through the entire community and all these people show up at Peter's mother-in-law's door. Sick people, possessed people, tortured people. Why? It wasn't because they knew they were going to be healed or delivered. Maybe some of them believed it, but surely not the whole city. They came out of curiosity, but it was a different kind of curiosity. It was a desperate curiosity. Wondering if this Jesus could possibly deliver them. Could I finally be free from this illness or from this torture? I mean, I could imagine people who had been tortured for a long time by, by these diseases and these ailments, like hoping against hope, like trying to talk themselves out of getting their hopes up, but then hearing the stories of the authority that Jesus had, and maybe he could deliver me. And that may be you this morning. Like maybe you're in a place where you say, I don't know if God can or will help me, but I've seen him do this for others. And I need to know if he can deliver me. Maybe it's from a, a physical ailment or a sin that has overtaken you or from a life of hardness and bitterness or from your own doubts. And I know that there are, there are some of you in this room that that is all hypothetical, that you don't have that sense of desperation. But there are many that come in here this morning desperate to know, can he really do this? And the question at the root of all of this was, who is this? Who is this who teaches with authority? Who is this with the authority to even command unclean spirits? Who is this who can make the lame walk and the deaf hear and the blind regain their sight? Who is this who does not back down from the powerful and who doesn't shy away from the outcast? Well, the answer that we know now on this side of the cross and this side of the resurrection is that he is Jesus. He is the Messiah he is the king, and he is Lord. And if he is, and he has authority and dominion over all things, if that is the case, then it has major implications for our lives. It affects everything. It changes everything. And we see that for them. They were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at the authority that he was exhibiting. And it has to change the way. If he really is who he says he is and he has that authority, then it changes the way we approach his teaching. It changes the way we look at, at, his, 
at, at his words because it's not just, he's not teaching with the wisdom of man. They'd heard that a million times before. But he's teaching with the authoritative voice of God. And we have that teaching in the Bible. We have the authoritative word of God. It's not just powerful. It's not just wise. It is authoritative. It's the, the, what they've tried to do to dismiss Jesus is saying, well, he was a wise teacher. He said some good things. That is very different from being authoritative. It's maybe one of the greatest misunderstandings about Christianity. The thought that, that we see this Bible as a book of, of wisdom. That's a, my, my friends, I have some friends who are violently opposed to Christianity. They, they, they would say, they would articulate that they just cannot believe that I'm foolish enough to believe in this Jesus and to submit my life to a book that is, in their mind, thousands of years old, put together by human beings. And the part that they're missing is they look at it like it's a philosophy book. That, that it's just full of some, some wise teachings and some helpful things, but it's nothing to submit to as like authoritative. And I would say that that is a huge problem, not just in, the, in those who are against Christianity and opposed to it, but those who claim Christianity. That in churches, that in Bible teaching churches, that we fall into that trap. That we see it as a book of wisdom, as something that I go to and I, I get some information and helpful tips and helpful counsel for myself. And if it is that, if that's all it is, if it's just, it's just wise, if it's just a book of wisdom, or if it's just a, even a book of power that has some powerful things to say in it, if it's just that, then it's nothing more than any run-of-the-mill spiritual self-help book. And it will leave you just as empty as all of those will. But it is very different than seeing it as authoritative. And the difference is in this approach to it. Many of us look at the Bible and we say, well, I know the Bible has wisdom in it. I know I should read it. I know I should learn from it. I know I should apply it to my life. And so we look at it and we, we take those things. And what we do is we approach it like we do with any other wise counsel. We hear it. We listen to it. We, we give it some, some weight. And we combine it then with, I combine it with my own thoughts and my own views on the subject. And then it comes out as like, okay, I formed it now. And now I have formed this new piece of truth that is my truth. And we do this even in the church, and it's shown by our language. We say things like, well, I just believe that, fill in the blank. Or I've just always, I've always thought this. Or just, it doesn't seem to me that, that God would, you know, whatever. And all that is, is a version of, yeah, yeah, I know what the Bible says. I've, I've heard it, and I've taken it, and I've put it together and combined it and mixed it up with my own common sense and my own wisdom and my own experience. And now I've come up with this new packaged truth. This is my truth. This is what I believe. That's very different than seeing it as authoritative. If it's authoritative, then I submit to it fully. I don't mix it in with my own views and my own thoughts. I want it to change my own views and my own thoughts. And the way it changes you, as strange as it may seem, is to let the Bible read you. It is the living word of God. It's not a historical book that we just learn about these certain elements. There's history in it, but it is a living book. 
authored by a living spirit who inhabits the hearts of those who read it. Timothy Keller is a great pastor and speaker and author. You've heard me quote him before. He talks of his transformation in college, how he went from just kind of churched to really following Jesus. And at the center of that transformation was his view of the Bible. And he articulates it this way. He says, before the change, before he really transformed into this disciple of Jesus, before the change, I I poured over the Bible, questioning and analyzing it. But after the change, it was as if the Bible, or maybe someone through the Bible, began pouring over me, questioning and analyzing me. That is what it looks like to let the Bible read you. It's why you can read things or hear it proclaimed and say, that was meant for me. That sounds like it was speaking directly to me. That's because the Holy Spirit knows exactly what you need to hear. It's a common approach to just study the Bible and to know about the Bible and to know about the wisdom there, but that is completely different than submitting to it as authoritative. It will study you if you let it. It will reveal your false views. It will reveal your lack of understanding. It will reveal your idols. And you might say, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want it to do that to me. Well, then good. You're getting to the place where they would have been when they heard, what kind of teaching is this? This is, this is authority. This sounds like authority. And for many people, you would look at that and say, well, that's just foolishness. To just check all of your own like, thinking at, at the door. and to, like, isn't, that, isn't that the whole problem with Christianity, with religion in general? Is it, is it more foolish to submit yourself to the all-knowing, all-wise, completely good king of kings, creator of everything? Or to say to that same king, I've heard it said this, but I say this. It all depends on who he is. It all hinges on who Jesus is. If he is who he says he is, then his words are authoritative. And if you lit it, it will reveal and it will change and it will diagnose and it will bring forth life. And as we go and we read this and it starts to transform our hearts, another huge area, and this is the other big one, is it should impact the way that we pray. Because when you are praying, you are not just praying to one who is more powerful, but to one who has authority. Huge implications. Because Jesus is not just powerful, though he is. He's all-powerful. But he also has authority over the situation. It's the difference between appealing to someone who has great influence, to having a problem and going to somebody who has great influence in the situation, and to the one who has authority over the situation, who makes all the decisions. And often when we pray, we pray to God as though he is able to help us in our circumstances or able to impact things. But do we always pray to him as the one who has authority over them? 
Think about the way that you pray for our country. Do you pray to God as one who is able to influence or do you pray to him as the one who appoints all leaders and even uses the evil to accomplish his purposes? And maybe a more personal one is maybe some of you right now are dealing with physical illnesses or ailments. I want you to hear this, that Jesus doesn't just have the power to bring healing. He has authority over your illness. And when you pray to him, and when he heals people, he doesn't overcome the illness. He doesn't just cure the illness. He commands the illness away. And it has no choice but to obey him. So if you are in that situation, I'm going to read your mind and think of the next question, which is my question, which is, well, then why doesn't he all the time? Because I've asked. I mean, imagine all these people. We see that them all coming to Peter's mother-in-law's door and they're bringing all these people who are sick and demon-possessed. And it's an interesting word that is chosen in there. It says, many were healed. Why doesn't it say all? Maybe because not all were. There are times in Scripture where we see that Jesus healed all and then there are times where we see he healed some or sometimes just one and this time it's many. But no matter what number you put on there, anything other than all means that somebody came and somebody walked away still sick. Somebody came and heard about the authority of this Jesus and heard the stories of what was going on. Somebody waited in line as Jesus was healing and casting out demons. And somebody started to get more and more filled with hope, like maybe this is going to happen for me. And somebody got to the front of the line and had Jesus say no. Why? This is going to come out in a couple of weeks as we look more and more at the healings, but as it pertains to his authority, I would say it is a legitimate question to ask. Ask that question of God. But understand that when you ask that question of God, you stand in a long line of saints before you. You stand with others who have asked that question stand with Abraham and with Job and with David and with Elijah and with Paul. And most amazingly, you stand in line with Jesus, who on the night before his death, praying in the garden, says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will but what you will. Hear me in this. Praying to one who has authority and understanding what that looks like, praying to the one that has authority means not only that I ask one who has authority over everything, over my illness, over my trouble, he has authority over all that, but it doesn't just mean that. 
it also means that he has authority over me and that I am called to accept whatever cup he gives me. So you can't have it both ways. You can't, if, even if we get to a place where we pray to Jesus as the one who has authority, we try to remove ourselves aside from that and say, Jesus, I know you have authority. You can command even the unclean spirits and they obey you. You own them. You, you have authority over all those things. Yes, and that includes you. Your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. And if you press into that, you will start to feel why they were shocked and astonished and a little panicked. Because that's scary. But it's also good. Because that kind of total authority is only good if the one who has authority is good. And he is good. And he demonstrates this on the cross. Because Jesus had authority over those who nailed him to the cross. He had authority over the evil that rejoiced in his murder. He had authority over death itself and over the grave, and yet he submitted to all of it for our sake and for the glory of the Father. Hebrews says that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the one who has authority over you is the one who submitted himself and gave his life for you. That is good news. That is much better than our man-made authority and autonomy that we want to imagine for ourselves. When people say, how could you submit just fully like that and just submit to his word? Because he is good. He is far better than I am. Whatever cup he is giving you, he is working it together for your good. And it will lead to more joy and more peace and more life. So when you pray to him, don't pray to someone who might be able to do something. Pray to the one who has authority over whatever is ailing you. But in doing that, also submit yourself to the authority of the one who loved you and gave himself up for you. This comes full circle then of then what do they, how do they respond to this? Here's the beautiful thing. This is what I want to close with. That this fear, this seeing his authority, seeing who he really is and what he's actually saying should spark fear in our hearts. It should make us cringe and make us a little timid as we like put our lives in his hands. But then we see the suffering servant who dies and gives himself up for us. And what we find is that when we place our fear in him, we are delivered from our fear of anything else. Christians are called to not be afraid. Why? Because Jesus has authority and we belong to him. 
If you are a follower of Jesus, then you are attached to Christ. And what that means is that that natural response of, well, I'm afraid of what is bigger than me or out of my control no longer applies to you because you are attached to Christ and there is nothing that is bigger than him or out of his control. Nothing. Fear is when you feel threatened by something. What could you possibly feel threatened by when you are in Christ? What could possibly separate you? Angels, demons, life, death, nothing. That's why the Bible, that's why in Romans 8 it says we are more than conquerors. Because we rejoice in the conquering of all those other things because we're attached to Christ. We belong to him. So whatever you fear, whatever's in your life that, that the enemy would say you should be afraid, the response is, I fear one, and that's it. And because I fear him, I fear nothing else. And if we lived like that, I mean, just imagine what it would look like if we actually lived like we believed that. If we actually walked around in our day-to-day lives fearing nothing not fearing what's happening in our country, not fearing what's happening in our workplaces, not fearing what's happening in our family. Yes, concerned. Yes, compassionate. Yes, engaged. Yes, involved, but not afraid. Not afraid. Because when we are afraid of any of those things, our response should always be to run to our Father. To run and abide in Christ. And there are people here who, as you approach Christ and as you start to see and as some of these things get exposed and maybe some of the views you've had are exposed as false and you look at that and you say, that's really scary. You do have a choice. And one of them is to run away and to hide in the truth that you've created for yourself. But the other is to run in and embrace your Savior and to embrace submitting your whole life to him. And the response of that kind of life. I mean, we see in this passage, Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law who's sick with a fever, and it says that he reaches down, grabs her by the hand, and pulls her up, and the fever is gone, and she immediately goes about serving. It's an interesting scene. Like you could read it in a cynical way and be like, Jesus came for a Sabbath feast and he shows up. Peter's like, hey, come over to my mother-in-law's house. She makes a killer Sabbath feast. Like we're just gonna, we're just gonna eat it and enjoy and hang out together. And we get in there and like, ah, no, she's sick. And Jesus goes, I'm hungry. I'm gonna get up, woman. You could read it like that. But that's not what's happening. Jesus heals her. And in her joy, she responds in the way that makes total sense. She serves him. You see it all through scripture. It's interesting. Jesus often commands, and we'll talk about this, Jesus often commands people who have seen a miracle to be silent. Don't tell anybody. And who obeys him? Unclean spirits obey him. Pharisees end up obeying him. You know who doesn't obey him? The people who are transformed. Now, I don't know, like, that's, that's a whole thing of trying to figure out, like, what does that mean and, and all that. But here's what I know for sure from their point of view. They're not keeping quiet about what they just saw happen because they were changed. 
That's what it looks like to be delivered by Jesus is you just jump up and you just start serving. You just start, you jump in wherever and doing whatever you possibly can because you just want to give your life in service of the king. And when you do that, you realize that what he's calling you to is this life of service to others. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, that's good. That's right. You want to serve me? Absolutely. I'm your king. Here's how you do it. Love those people. Go tell them about me and the good news that there is. People are moved constantly to worship and to thanksgiving. Just imagine what it would look like. People who serve him fearlessly, loving people who are hard to love, serving people that they're called to serve, not worrying about the things that are going on around them, drawing fearlessly to the outcast, disregarding what people might think about reputations or anything, and loving people that other people say are unlovable giving radically of our time and of our resources, and of course, doing the thing that Jesus commanded us to do. I put the over-under on how many times I was going to great, um, quote the Great Commission during the series at 45, and we're well on our way, but here you go. Jesus came and said to them, after he's risen from the dead, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. So then what? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Church, we belong to the creator of the universe. Not because we're good, not because we're smart, but because he looked down on us with compassion and said, I'm going to rescue you and I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to make you my own. How could we possibly not live in response to that? Let us be a church that is marked by fearless love and sacrificial service because we are subjects of a king who so loved his people that he gave himself. All things are under his authority. This is the best possible news for us. Let's pray. God, we desperately need you to open our eyes. God, I'm just, I'm just so struck by the fact that it's not fear, like it's, it's not a definition of fear that we need. We don't need to think about that more. We just need to see you clearly. Help us to see you clearly. Help us to see beauty of your glory and your goodness and your kindness. Help us to joyfully submit to that and, just, and rejoice that we are called your own. Help us to lay down our lives. Empower us by the Holy Spirit to live in response to this glorious truth. Amen.